This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Good afternoon. This is Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to, or welcome back to, the Bright Focus Chat. Today's topic is the role of occupational therapy in low vision. And we're very fortunate to have a, uh, a new guest with us today. It's Mr. Joe Cardine. He is with the Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. And... Uh, specializes in occupational therapy for people with vision and other cognitive um, uh, cognitive issues. So briefly, I'll tell you a little bit about the Bright Focus Chats. Once a month, we have the opportunity to spend about 30 to 40 minutes with leading experts on vision, disease, and eye health. Now I'd like to turn to today's guest, uh, Mr. Joe Cardine. And Joe, I'd like to just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what do you do at Thomas Jefferson? Thanks, Michael. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Joe Cardine. Uh, I am an occupational therapist from Thomas Jefferson uh, U- University Hospital in Philadelphia. Um, a little bit about what I do um, pertaining to this discussion today. Uh, I work with many folks with low vision, um, and that may be from a neurological problem. It may be from a clinical eye disease that is progressive. Um, In addition to that, I also work with uh, our acquired brain injury population and other neurological diseases. Um, A lot of what I do is in outpatient rehab. Uh, I, I, you know, have experience with inpatient conditions as well, um, where low vision is both in the hospital and in in the community. Well, great. So that is a little bit about me clinically. (laughs) And the, uh, the the career day question, um, why did you want a career in healthcare? Well, I think starting out, like most people in my field, um, a lot of it is from family experiences and just the nature of wanting to help people. Um, while I've you know started in this field, I've started to really find my niche and providing care for people who don't necessarily have the best access to care. Uh, so it's a lot of folks with certain types of conditions, especially in the low vision field, and trying to be innovative to change the way we help people. Great. And um, um, so, Mr. Cardine, what are some of the things that occupational therapy can do to help people who have low vision conditions? So our profession's role in the low vision field, um, I will say we are underutilized just because, you know, the field of occupational therapy, some people still don't know what that is. Um, So I will tell people what that is first. Um, Our role in rehab or rehabilitation is to help people get back to what they like to do or what they need to do or what their role is, period, in their life. And so what that means for a lot of different things, um, I'll keep it just with low vision, but, you know, our role is to work with a multidisciplinary team, uh, like a patient's eye care provider or eye doctor, and address the limitations they have regarding their function. And so what I mean by function, I mean, you know, how they take care of themselves, their dressing, you know, how they brush their teeth, how they function in their home and helping the family as well, uh, because this is definitely 
a population where it's a, it's a family event. You know, not one person goes through this alone. Yeah. Um, we have the opportunity with the low vision population to train them how to use devices that are prescribed from their eye doctor. Um, and then also, you know, the field of occupational therapy started in mental health many, many years ago. We're at about 101 to 102 years old as a profession. So, you know, mental health resources are difficult to access in general. And, you know, in the field of low vision, you know, sometimes low vision is a, it can be considered a chronic illness because it's, it can be a progressive condition. So, you know, we help address that. We are not the psychologists that, you know, we all would prefer people have access to, but we're there for you and we try and give better perspective because if we can do that, we help your function out in the long run. Um, but, oh, go ahead. No, no uh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. So just like some other things, you know, we are able to do is we help you use the remaining vision that you do have and try and adapt your environment and adapt the tasks and things that you need to do um, to kind of give you your confidence back and to make you as independent as possible. That's great. There's so many great, great points in in in, uh, in your answer there that we'll we'll get to throughout the chat. And and you know again, you made so many great points. One that I'd like to start with is um, people the the challenge people have asking for help. I, I come from a long line of uh, stoic New Englanders that falsely think we can do everything on our own. And so I was wondering, how do you get uh, work with the family to to get someone to to ask for the help they might need? So. I think it, every situation is a little bit different, of course. Um, and I think getting, and it's everyone's job, you know, it's our job, it's the, the medical provider's job is to get them, get everyone on board with what's going on to be able to understand why you need help and to know the pros and cons of everything that's going on. It's an emotional time when someone is going through this and needing rehab and, you know, getting to accept that we have to address these limitations because if we don't, more negative things will happen than positive things. Yes. Now, what do you, how do you approach a patient in a family that really feels a, a sense of hopelessness or a sense of, of not having a lot of optimism about, their ability to continue to live, uh, you know, a normal life. Like how, how much of that's reality and how much of it is something that you can help through your work uh, to make people feel a little more, a little more confident. So I will say first, that feeling is, I think a feeling everyone goes through when they start out on this journey of, you know, going through this type of rehab or going through this type of, progressive disease. Um, just like any other condition that is progressive, people feel like they've had something taken from them. And reassuring and helping them feel that it's okay, that number one, it's okay that you feel that way, because I think anybody would. Um, but trying to change perspective on, well, we're still here, 
and there's still a lot to live for and a lot to gain even though you're going through this. So it's it's like addressing the white elephant in the room. Um, that's always difficult. Um, and it's difficult to see people go through that. But our role in this is to give them hope again. And, you know, sometimes we address the mental health first before we really move on with adapting your life and introducing devices that make you feel that, you know, well, I'm not me because I have to use this. You know, there's a lot of emotion that goes into it, but, you know, becoming a team through this um, really helps, I think, make things a little more comfortable and helps people progress themselves with confidence. Yeah, that makes uh yeah, it sounds like you can really make a difference. So, how does somebody get started? Like, how does somebody um, find a uh, uh, an occupational therapist? So, there's a few ways to kind of go about accessing services. So, typically, occupational therapists are everywhere. We work with physical therapists in clinics and in the hospital. Now, to find an occupational therapist specifically for low vision problems, um, you what you want to do first is talk to your eye care provider and see what they know, see if they have any relationships with an occupational therapist, because we are the only rehab clinicians that work with eye care providers. Um, we are the only rehab clinicians that can accept a referral from an eye care provider. So there's a really good chance that your eye care provider will know someone to get you the right services. Now, if you go to a low vision eye care provider, I can almost guarantee you that they work with someone who can provide the services. Um, and if that, if you hit a dead end there, there are websites that have a list of therapy providers who offer these types of services, and I can give them to you. Um, you can go to the American Occupational Therapy Association website and find like certified therapists uh, with low vision certifications. Um, there's a website called visionaware.org. Um, they also have some links that will, they're great, it's a great website for education and resources as well as a listing of of therapists and other providers um, and then a couple others that do is the association of education and rehab for the blind and visually impaired um, that is aerbvi.org and then the acvrep.org website is the, it's really a website for healthcare providers where you can go through your certification process, but they have a list there as well of colleagues in the country um, that offer the services. So the information is available. Um, unfortunately, the getting it around to people across the country can be a challenge, of course. Um, but 
there are many opportunities, I think, for people to access the services. I think there's just other barriers that may limit them to access them physically. Sure. We'll try to get to, to some of those in a moment. Um, so in, in terms of, you know, you know you've, you've mentioned how somebody could, could go about um, working with their with their um, eye care professional and to, to get started. Broadly speaking, are the services uh, you and your, your colleagues provide, um, are they covered by Medicare and Medicaid or private insurance or there's, you know, referral um, you know, referral issues that sometimes people go through. So sort of, you know, I know there's a lot of different roads there, but sort of broadly speaking, um, are these services mm-hmm. covered in some fashion? Yeah, so the the wonderful thing about our profession's involvement in this field is that the way you pay for therapy services is the way that would work for this. So an example provided, you know, if you had to go to physical therapy for a shoulder injury, you would get a referral from your doctor and you would go to therapy. So in this case, you would get a therapy referral from your eye doctor or eye care provider and they would write the referral for you to come to occupational therapy for the services. So how that compares to other providers, like, you know, some eye doctors have the ability to train their patients on devices um, because they may not have a therapist to work with. So the eye doctors are trying to do all of that work too, um, you know, you would be paying a co-fee for yeah. an eye care specialist versus just a therapy copay, which is a lot cheaper. So Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance all covers occupational therapy um, pretty much across the board. Uh, even veterans' benefits and TRICARE, is all, they cover occupational therapy as well. Um, you are normally authorized a certain amount of visits per year per like therapy discipline. So for example, let's say you have Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance, you may have 60 authorized authorized visits of therapy. So that's physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy all included. Um, and then to add to that, because I know this probably will be a question is, you know, how long is someone in therapy for? Um, you know, it will depend on the therapist's discretion about your plan of care, but you could be in therapy anywhere from a month to three months, but maybe only once a week or once every other week Um, because you work as a team. And so there's a lot that goes into that where it may not be that you need to go to therapy two to three times a week as you would for a knee or shoulder injury. Um, So that is the, the, the cycle of how you process yourself through therapy is you get a referral and you can take that referral to the therapy specialist for that. No, thank you. That was, that was a a great, a great question, a great answer. And and so the, the, the services um, that's just outlined there, I think a lot of us in our own lives sometimes find a little bit of a triangle between um, the, uh, our our doctor and a, a specialist uh, provider and the patient and sometimes there's communication and coordination challenges. Mm-hmm. How do you 
uh, how do you uh, make that go as well as it as it can? So I am fortunate to be on an electronic medical record system that many large university academic centers are on. So our communication, I will say, as I've worked in other, worked for other companies and other facilities that we are fortunate to have an excellent system. Um, and so we can then take more accountability to help the patient, you know, with that daunting process as it may be sometimes. Um, you know, we have direct access to the patient's phone number and the doctor's email and, you know, we can do things a lot quicker. Um, but I know in some places it's not always like that. So there becomes a little more communication challenges yeah. and, and the ability to make things smooth as, you know, as I see, people are already going through a really tough time. The last thing they need are communication breakdowns and longer times out of the service that they need. Um, so I'd say with the times that are changing, that is becoming a lot easier for a lot of people, especially in the metropolitan areas. No, great, great point about how it, it is sometimes it's just the the last the last thing people people need in that situation. So now you've mentioned um, uh, you know different different tools and and technologies um, that can help people, and you know, like to to talk about those on and off for a few minutes. But we have a first question, kind of related to that, is um it's about contrasts on it, whether it's a TV set or a computer or a smartphone. Mm -hmm. Are there kind of light lightness or darkness uh, settings and contrasts that, that can help people with low vision? So what typically how we address contrast and lighting is there's ways to evaluate what lighting and contrast you need. Um, it's very specific to every person based on the condition and where things have progressed or not progressed. Um, you know, typically with contrast, we start simple you know, black and white contrast um, to make things less blurred together and not having light colors together. Um, that's more of a technique and a strategy to adapt your environment, especially in the home. Um, but with lighting, there's different types of lighting, as we know, and different levels of lumen and temperature are important based on how sensitive with light that you are. Um, I will say just a simple strategy is when you have the lights off in your home, but the TV on, it makes a much brighter scene where you may have more glare and more difficulty looking. Um, that in itself is something we don't realize that can affect anybody, but really, especially with the low vision population, um, that becomes a barrier that we try and fix immediately. But, um, you know, you would work with your therapist and work and sometimes just finding out what works for you is the best way. Um, not everything is textbook and not everything is, you know, as simple as it may look. Um, but different types of lighting with different tasks in different rooms of your home um, or in the environment can be identified for you well, that's good. That's through, through the service. 
And uh, are there specific, in terms of computers and smartphones or tablets, are there specific apps uh, that are helpful for people with low vision? There are some pretty interesting apps out there that I will, Michael, I will provide for for everybody um, great, great. that will be accessible. Um, there, So I will just describe the apps. I won't say any names because it'll be easier just to have it on a handout. But there are some like facial recognition apps and there's like uh, voice to audio apps. Um, there's an app where you can hold your phone up and it does depend on the type of phone that you have, but most of them are Apple and Android compatible as well as iPads um, where it can identify what room you're in or like what's in the room um, or that, you know, it can log the person that's in the room. You know, let's just say it's your spouse and you hold your device up to your spouse. It will recognize them as, you know, let's just say Jim. Um, so there are apps like that. There are apps that magnify you know, documents that you're trying to read, or it will scan the document and read it to you. Um, what I do with folks often, just like as a technology starter, if you have an iPhone, um, you know, the iPhone has magnification in the camera. Um, but what I do for people is I just have them use their phone to make something larger, or if they take a picture of it, then they can do that as well. But I also have people use it as a navigation tool that they can look through their phone screen to see where they're going, especially in different rooms that have different lighting. Um, I've had a couple of people recently where they, you know, talk about how they go into a darker restaurant and it takes them a long time to adjust to where it takes them about 20 minutes to then, you know, they still can't see the menu after 20 minutes. So they feel like they're holding everybody up. So we had them use their phone to walk them in and use that for the menu. And they had the best experience possible. And so just like those little things about technology um, go a long way for people. And so I try not to complicate something with more apps and more tools if it's not necessary, uh, just because that becomes super overwhelming and, you know, with the different ages of people, not everyone is tech savvy and I myself am not the most tech savvy. Uh, so I can't imagine how it feels for someone who really doesn't like technology at all. Yeah. No, very nice. It's we very try and use our judgment on that for sure. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. Now, again, just, just I know broadly speaking, we don't want to get into specific product names, but broadly speaking, our some of these apps uh, free of charge, do they, or, or or more of them likely to be something that somebody would have to pay for. I would say most of them are free. I know there's a couple that like they give you free access for like a month, and then you have to subscribe. So I try and stay away from those, unless people are like, no, I don't care, it's fine. Um, but I try and you know utilize what's free uh, because there's a lot available and. You know, it's already it already could be a tough financial time in someone's life that we don't need to burden them financially yeah, and make right. them in, like feel more insecure about things that they don't need to feel. Sure, no, very very understandable. So you know, kind of staying on sort of the kind of you know keeping a a vibrant positive life. I know um, 
uh, you know, many of us really, really enjoy reading both the relaxing nature of it and it's good for the, the you know, intellectual stimulation. Like, uh, are there things that you do to help people uh, continue to enjoy reading uh, as, they, as they have low vision? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of ways to read. Um, the, the most important thing is no matter what eye condition that you have or how impaired your vision is, it's super important to make sure that you are seeing an eye care provider who can potentially make a lens change or change to your glasses to enhance your vision because they're because you have a progressive eye condition does not mean glasses are then ineffective. They are very effective as long as they are up to date. And because your vision is changing, um, you probably see your provider maybe every three to four months. I know some people see them every month. Um, it, it definitely depends on the situation, but um, that's number one, is making sure you have the right lenses. The second factor is in therapy, there's a lot of adaptive ways to read and the use of devices that your eye doctor may recommend or that your therapist may recommend um, can be very beneficial to magnify what you want to read and to make it less straining on you and less frustrating, um, as well as some of the apps that I talked about earlier can really help uh, voice to text and it, it can scan the page and read it to you at a speed that is tolerable to you. Um, so there, there's many ways for many people of many ages to participate in reading, whether you're an adolescent, whether you're in college, whether you're middle-aged, or whether you're elderly. Um, that obviously reading is one of the largest impacts of function with this population and it has become it has become one of the most focal points for rehab um, because we we need to read everything that's the yeah. the world we live in yeah well great sounds like you can really make a make uh make an impact um i know a real tough topic for a lot of families uh is driving uh as in your as a in your work in the clinic do you directly or kind of indirectly get involved with um with the, the whole question of driving or, or not driving? So th there's a few ways to address driving. The first way is what I see is that people won't, well, let's put it this way. People will be in denial that they can't drive and they put themselves at risk. That's, that's the one way to deal with driving. The second way is to talk to your providers about it and say, what do you think is best based on my current performance? You know, what would you do if it was you? Um, because that's okay to ask. You know, I mean, certain people have the authority to make certain decisions. Um, I, for sure, am not that person to make that decision. Um, but it's important to talk to your eye care provider or your medical doctor or your primary doctor about it to get words of advice. Um, it's a very sensitive topic. It's a very sensitive topic in general across the, the medical world. Um, but another alternative is there are certain 
occupational therapists or there are certain clinicians out there. They're not just OTs, but they are certified in driving rehab. So what your doctor may recommend is say, why don't you have an evaluation for driving rehab to see if the current performance is appropriate for on the road. Um, driving rehab typically does a general evaluation of your strengths and your range of motion and your neurological signs, and then they will get into more reaction time and like simulation of driving. And then if you're safe, they'll do like an on the road evaluation to make sure that it's okay to move forward. Um, Cause there are a lot of people with low vision who do drive and that it is safe, but you know, sometimes if the condition's not managed appropriately or, you know, some folks don't have access to medication or they aren't taking their medication or eye drops as appropriately, things progress. And that means your performance will decrease when it comes to driving and, you know, not driving and not having your independence is a cause of a lot of other problems. Yeah. Um, so it's a very, you know, in any setting of the medical, the medical field, it's a very sensitive topic. And the, for the best thing is just be honest and talk with your providers about it because you don't want to hurt somebody and you, you don't want to get hurt either. Yeah. It's not worth it to you or your family. It's it's really not. No, I appreciate your uh, you know how you handle the the many natures of that topic and kind of a kind of a I see sort of a, a companion a bookend topic of driving uh, of it, you know the other part of independence is people want to stay in their own homes and stay in their community. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, obviously a huge topic, but just you know, uh, do you have a, a couple uh, tips to help people? live at home longer to avoid falls or other types of um, other types of, of, of problems that might make them no longer able to live at home? I mean, how can, how can someone's low vision uh, stay safe at home? So I think when you're addressing functioning in the home, you want to address that the home is organized as best as possible. There's not a lot of clutter. There's not a lot of items on the floor that you can trip over or rugs that, will move around on you. Um, You want to make sure lighting is appropriate during the day and at night um, and in the appropriate places. So, you know, nightlights are good on the stairs. Nightlights are good in the bathroom. uh, Nightlight in the kitchen. Um, They do have motion-activated nightlights now. I think they're wonderful. I have them for myself. (laughs) Um, They're awesome for lighting. You also want to address how can we make the contrast in this home better suited for you so you can be as independent as possible, you know, organizing your closets even by color organization or however, whatever works for the person is what would be best when you're doing adaptations or modifying your environment, Um, you know, keeping things in the same place so you know where they are. A lot of the times with low vision, you then start to rely on your your attention and your memory because if you've lost your vision, you have to really change the way you think sometimes. Um, 
you know, if you can have a therapist come to the home that has experience in low vision, you've hit the jackpot because that is what most people want. Um, but on the other side of it that we see is that it's, it's good that you want to stay in your home and that you don't have to leave your home and have to, go, you know, move out of your home and relocate. But sometimes the comfort of your own home does more ineffectiveness to your mental health because you feel isolated and you feel stuck in your home. And it's the only place you feel comfortable because it's familiar and you can see everything better there than in an environment that you're not familiar with. Well, that's, a, so, that's a great point. Yeah. There's I two ways to look at it. it. Yeah. And I think if you look, if you can look at that in both ways, I think you'll make better decisions about your own health. And I think family members will say, will look at that and say, you know, what, what's the best we can do then to make sure, you know, that we can have the benefit of both. Um, because when you do have low vision, you know, there is, levels of depression that comes with that. And that's where the isolation comes from. And the most important thing is that you stay social as best as you can. I know not every person's situation is that easy, but you know, if you have family and they're supportive, like and you have friends and you have people you can reach out to, you should encourage yourself to leave your home to be with those people and not necessarily have them always come to you. Yeah, um, great. It does a lot more good than bad. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Um, so, Mr. Cardin, I was wondering, just, as we you know conclude today, is there a, a minute or two of sort of big picture advice? Like, if there was something you just wished you could tell all your patients and their family, like if there was one thing you wish everybody knew uh, that you came across in your work, uh, is there something that that would be? Well, I will say, you know, just with how eye diseases and eye conditions really develop is that sometimes things are genetic and things are out of our control and things happen and we have to be strong and work through it because that is one of the only options we have. Um, but the other thing is that a lot of conditions may be a result of poor health maintenance and not necessarily taking the best care of yourself and, you know, eating a diet that you want, but not necessarily should be doing um, and exercising. You know, it's important at a young age that we take care of ourselves because things can develop and things that we don't want. Um, and I think even if you do have an onset of any progressive eye condition, you still can manage that and not let it progress to such a degree where it kind of takes over your life. So, you know, if people are making recommendations about diet and exercise and, you know, better mental health practices, I promise you it's not a script that it really does make an impact on the management of your condition because medication is helpful in, you know, helping things not progress quickly, but you also can do a lot to help yourself um, to keep things very minimal for a very long time. Um, and then as far as, you know, advice on support, it's as 
impactful this is for everyone in your family and you as a patient, try and always support each other through it because it can be, it doesn't have to be extremely difficult and it doesn't have to be extremely life-changing, but how support is approached, I think, is one of the most important parts of someone's recovery or management of a condition in low vision and honestly in just about anything uh, when it comes to an injury or a condition. So I would say that's my advice. That's what I, you know, I preach and I see that in all of my patients. Um, This is an adjustment and to adjust in a healthy way is something always to think about. Well, that's great. Now, that is fantastic advice, you know, not only on the, the topic today, but certainly the challenges that, that many of us are, are, are going through. So I really, really appreciate that. So, Mr. Cardine, on behalf of the Bright Focus Foundation, I just want to thank you for joining us today, and you were just tremendously helpful. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. Great. On behalf of Bright Focus Foundation, uh, thank you to our audience for joining us today, and we'll be back at the end of April. Thanks. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.